I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. I know that many of you have assumed since I came to the Bible Church of Little Rock that I only preach out of the first chapter of each of the books. We will be working our way through into the other chapters of both Colossians and Mark, but there is so much here for us to learn, for us to discover, for us to plumb the depths of God's Word. Every word of God is tried, it is pure, and it is available for us to study the rich truths of the Master. And we find ourselves tonight in Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 34, in a message I've entitled, The Compassion of Jesus. And you follow along as I read Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her, and he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. It seems as though when you read this particular paragraph of Scripture, that there's not much there, at least in terms of practical application from God's Word to us as believers, at least in the 20th century. And at first glance, it looks as though, when you read this portion, that it is something that happened historically in time. It was something that happened between Jesus and his disciples, Jesus and the crowd to whom he ministered. But at a further reading and studying, I think you really find two things that are going on in this text. And they are two things that I will return to again and again as we talk to you tonight. And the two things are these, power or authority and compassion or grace. Power or authority, compassion or grace. Let's how those two things are interwoven within this text. Look at me, first of all, at verse 29. It says, And immediately after they had come out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now you remember that I have said to you on a number of occasions as we've worked our way through the first chapter of Mark's Gospel, but he likes to use this word immediately. Sometimes he uses the word immediately because he's talking about something that directly occurs chronologically, and yet there are times when he uses the word immediately to discuss events in the life of Christ which obviously were very impactful to Peter 
who no doubt was the one who communicated some of these very truths to Mark as Mark wrote them down. The immediately here in verse 29 obviously means that there is a chronological link between what has come before and what is occurring now. You remember that the context for this passage clearly comes to us all the way back from verse 16. There is where it contains the account of Jesus calling Simon and Andrew, James and John, to himself. Now, admittedly, when you read the Gospel accounts, there are a number of occasions where it appears as though Jesus is calling his disciples to himself. If you read here in Mark chapter 1, as well as some of the other Gospel accounts, you see very clearly that he calls Simon and Andrew, James and John, to be his very disciples, to follow him. And yet as you read on in the Gospels, especially the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are other occasions where Jesus also calls his disciples to himself. In fact, as we go on in Mark's Gospel in chapter 3, we will see the account where Jesus spent all night in prayer, and after he has prayed all night, it says that he chooses his apostles. And you say, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense, because clearly here in Mark chapter 1, he has called at least four of them to himself and to follow him. Well, it seems as we read the Gospels, there are stages or levels of Jesus calling his own disciples to himself. And it could be here that when Jesus calls Simon and Andrew, James and John to himself, he's calling them to some sort of first level of category in discipleship and following him. It could be stated that even here when Simon and Andrew, James and John are following Christ, they really have been told very little by our Lord as to exactly what that following and that calling really means. In Mark 3, when he calls them as apostles for him, he gives them more opportunity, more information, more data as to what that calling and what that discipleship will entail. All that we know from this account in Mark 1.16 is that they are along the seashore casting their nets and fishing, and Jesus says to them in verse 17, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. It says in verse 18 that immediately, and there's that word again, they left their nets and they followed him. You know that really it uh, concerns four of them, Simon and Andrew and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And you remember what immediately happens when they go into the synagogue in Capernaum and teach. Verse 21 says, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach, and they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority. You remember I said to you, great and wonderful things are wrapped up in that word authority. Jesus came on the scene and began to communicate the authority of his words and of his works that they had never known. He was a man that was different than their scribes. Even they picked up on that. It says he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You remember what happened in that synagogue? Just then, verse 23 tells us, there was a man in their own synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? 
I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus, with the authority that only he can give, rebuked him, saying in verse 25, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. With the resultant response that the crowd were all amazed, including, by the way, Simon and Andrew, James and John. So, that they debated among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. And there's that word again, authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. It could well be that even Simon and Andrew, James and John, are beginning, just beginning, to find out about the authority and the power and the compassion and the grace of this man, Jesus Christ. New vistas of thought are no doubt opening up in their minds as they begin to understand this Jesus, this man, this man who seems human in every way and yet in every way divine, for he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Verse 28 concludes by saying, Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And now we come to the place where Mark links chronologically the very next thing that occurs. He says, Immediately, after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. They, of course, are no doubt the five key personalities in this text. Jesus, Simon and Andrew, and James and John. And after a very, very incredible time in the synagogue, with this unclean spirit being cast out and the people amazed, struck out of their minds, the text says. They come to the house of Peter's wife's family. And they come there, no doubt, to have some lunch. Now, it's interesting to note that it says it was the house of Simon and Andrew. You know that it could very well be that Simon's wife Peter's wife, and maybe even Peter's wife's family, their mother-in-law, it doesn't say anything about uh, his father-in-law, maybe he's deceased at this point, maybe not, we don't really know, and maybe there are some other relatives uh, of his family, maybe there are some relatives of his wife's family there now. We know that in Palestine, in in the Middle East, as it was known at that particular time frame, that there were many people who, after they married, would combine their families together, and they would begin to live in the same home, especially if it meant they were going to be able to save financially from two separate households. You might remember that when they first met Jesus along the banks of the Jordan, Peter and Andrew, according at least to John 1.44, were identified as being from Bethsaida. And evidently, they had moved to Capernaum in order to establish themselves intimately with Christ. And this is the place where they have established themselves. Sometimes people ask me, did Jesus have a home? Did he have a place where he went after these uh, large measures of ministry activity? And the answer is yes. And that place is right here. 
Some will object to that and say, but I thought that the scripture says that Jesus did not have a house or a home because it says that he did not have anywhere to lay his head. Well, the answer to that is that Jesus did not have in the official sense a home, but he certainly had a base of operations, and this is where it is. And as all of them move into Capernaum and have this base of ministry operations, it says clearly that Simon and Andrew had a house, and this is that house. If you were to study Mark chapter 2, verse 1, Mark 3:27, Mark 7:24, Mark 9:33, Mark chapter 10, verse 10, it would show us that this is the place that Jesus has established his headquarters for ministry. All of those places have reference to this house, to this location, to this place. And so they come to this place after this manifold ministry opportunity. And they're probably going there to have lunch, to have some refreshment, maybe even have the opportunity for reclining after lunch and having a nap. So they go. They go to this house. And as I said, they're going there probably to eat, and it's about 12 noon. That's probably the time when uh, the synagogue was over, uh, maybe 12, 10 p.m. if the preacher was real good. And they go there in order to rest and have some relaxation. Now, the Jews did not ordinarily eat before going to morning worship. So this would be an opportunity to eat a very, very good meal in the middle of the day. Luke 14.1 says that their custom was to eat bread on the Sabbath after returning from the synagogue. So this was, a, this was a grand time. It was almost like a celebration. They had their time of worship in the morning. They, of course, obviously had come through their, their Sabbath time of rest and relaxation, and they're going to the synagogue, and after they have now returned, they come to a feast. And the women of the house would have been those who would have been most responsible for gathering all of the meal together of working hard to present it to the men of the house, and they come and are now ready to receive the feast that is going to be offered to them. Look at verse 30. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. Now, I just say as an aside that contrary to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, this is obviously a reference right in Scripture that Peter had a wife. You see it there? Peter's mother-in-law, Simon's mother-in-law, was lying sick with a fever. It is amazing to me the kinds of linguistic gymnastics that Roman Catholics do to try to somehow subvert this very clear word. If Peter had a mother-in-law, what did that imply? That he had a wife. Very good class. Very good. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, it says this, 1 Corinthians 9, 5, Paul says, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, Paul says? Yes, if we had the opportunity and the freedom to do so, we could take along a wife, a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Jesus. Peter. That's another reference that Peter had a wife, explicitly. The subversion of teaching is amazing to me as people want to rest away from the scriptures. It's 
its real meaning for their own meaning. Clearly, Peter had a wife. And according to the account by Luke the physician in his gospel account, he had a great fever, a violent fever, literally, Luke 4.40. It literally says she was lying prostrate, burning with fever. Intermittent fever and dysentery, you've heard of that if you are familiar with the medicinal elements of high fever, the latter often fatal, dysentery, are normal Arabian diseases. That would have been a very normal illness and fever in the time and season of Palestine. And obviously the medical means to counteract such fever were very, very limited at that time. Often what would happen is that someone who had this kind of dysentery, this kind of fever, would simply go into their room, and if God in his grace were to deliver them, they would offer deliver them without any medication at all. And if his choice was not to deliver them, they would die there. It may have even been that Peter's family, Peter's wife's family, seeing this incredible violent fever and illness, knows that she is about to die. Notice the text, it says, and immediately they spoke to him about her. Immediately. I mean, this is a crisis situation. She is lying on her deathbed. And it gives us the idea that they're waiting for, for Jesus to return from the synagogue. As soon as he comes through the front door, the most immediate need is this woman's illness. Luke's account says, they made request of him on her behalf. And she must have been in a bed somewhere in another part of the house, off in another section, because it says in verse 31, and he came to her. He had to travel through the house, through to a location where she is lying very, very sick. And even though the Lord was no doubt tired, after incredible ministry operation, and even though he's probably very, very hungry, He's far more concerned about others than he is for himself. It reminds me, frankly, of Philippians 2, 3-5. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but look out also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, he was God, he is God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, becoming obedient as a servant. And this is the living illustration of the service and the compassion and the ministry of Jesus Christ. He's tired, he's hungry, he has just taught in the synagogue, he's expelled a demon in the synagogue, they have walked, to Peter's house, and yet the thing that is on his mind on the immediate basis, once he's informed, is that he needs to minister to this woman. Notice verse 31. He raised her up. Now we don't know if Peter's mother-in-law had died at this point. That word raised her up could actually be 
a phrase that speaks of resurrection. I told you about that in the Acts 14 passage with regard to the Apostle Paul, didn't I? That Paul, when he was stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead, it could have been that he was dead because literally it said he got up. And that same kind of phraseology is used here, and he raised her up. We don't know. All we know is that she's very sick, and she is either in need of resurrection or she is in need of a great resuscitation, and Jesus comes to her. And it says in <clears throat> verse 31, And taking her up by the hand, the fever left her. And I love the brevity of the account of the gospel. It just says in a phrase, And he raised her up, and he took her by the hand, and the fever left her. You know, that speaks volumes to me about the calm confidence of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, no doubt, like I do on television, and read accounts of people who are saying there's great revival, there are great signs and wonders, there's a great charismatic move of the Holy Spirit, where people are raised from the dead, where people are healed of various diseases, where people are in incredible ways ministered to in our own day. And yet often when you see those things on television, whether it's the evangelist Peter Popoff, who, by the way, is now back on television, you may see him from time to time, who was exposed out in California when I was there as a fraud and a fake and a charlatan because his wife by two-way radio would radio information into his ear and he would tell people all about their lives and that was because his wife and other plants were out before the, the particular thing began, the crusade began, asking questions about people and talking to them and they would write this information down and then she would tell her husband by this, this uh, supernatural means, quote-unquote. And then he would tell them about their lives and they would be amazed. And then because of the fact that they believed that he indeed was sent from God, they would get, get up out of their wheelchairs or they would do all kinds of incredible exploits that you see on the stage. And yet when he was exposed, it didn't seem like there were any miraculous elements going on. He's back on television. Or Benny Hinn or anybody who might be seen on television these days. And you know what strikes me about that? is that they don't appear to me to have the calm confidence of the Lord Jesus. They can't do what he did. They can't with just the touch of his hand, or even as the apostles, as they walked along, and even the, the shadow of the cloak of the apostle Paul or Peter was used to heal people. That's really not anything like what we're seeing here all of the shenanigans and all of the things about running across a stage and people falling down in mass has nothing whatsoever to do with biblical Christianity. It certainly has nothing to do with what Jesus is doing here. Just with a calm, confident, in a prompt and yet very gracious way, he extends his hand to her, rebukes the fever and it leaves her immediately. In fact, in Luke 4.39, it uses the very word rebuke that is also used in chapter 8, verse 24, in Jesus rebuking the, the sea, rebuking the wind. It's the same word. 
Jesus is Lord over all of the elements. And he's also Lord over disease. And he rebukes both when he wills. So he speaks to the fever as if it was going to be cast in the deepest sea. And the gentleness and the power of this man is incredible. He has the authority of all the worlds, of all creation. And as the Lord of the universe, he stands before this woman and he extends in a very calm and gracious way his hand. And that is beautiful to me. He is the Lord, the creator, the sovereign of the skies. And yet he extends his hand in a calm confidence. And the fever immediately leaves her. Verse 31. What was her response? Service. And she waited on them. You know what? She has a meal to prepare. She has a job to do. She has service. There was absolutely no trace of the weakness. The fever is immediately gone. You would expect under normal circumstances that she would have to have some recovery time, some rehabilitation. I mean, this is a near-fatal, if not fatal, disease. And from literally one second to the next, she is completely well. I'd like to tell that to some of these charismaniacs. I'd like to ask them the question, why don't you go down to the hospitals for these people who are really sick and really ill, and why don't you immediately, like Jesus Christ, heal these people so that literally from one second to the next, they are completely well, with absolutely no problems, no medical issues, no illnesses whatsoever. And why don't you do it without the television cameras and the light? You see, they have it all wrong. The cameras and the lights and the folder all is all designed for the exaltation of self. That's, by the way, one reason why I don't think we have any healers these days. Do we have healing these days? Absolutely. And does God heal supernaturally at times when he wills? Absolutely. But do we have people who are healers today? No. Why? Because Jesus has all the glory for himself. And if he's going to do it, he's going to do it himself. He certainly doesn't need us. And he certainly doesn't need us to do the kinds of exploits that he and the apostles did, that Moses did, that Elisha and Elijah did, because the glory is to God alone. And in our dispensation, in our time, what we need is to simply submit to the will of God. And he will do what he will. And the response, every time someone was healed by Jesus Christ, it was immediate, and it was lasting, and it was permanent. There was never a time where Jesus Christ, when he healed, didn't heal immediately. And even when he used the spittle on the man's eyes, it was only as an illustration from blindness to sight. Every time he healed, it was immediate. Not the kinds of things you hear about or read about or see today. That's one way that you can see through the phoniness of it all. Someone said the touch of Jesus brought instant healing 
and the consciousness of healing brought grateful devotion to him by her. He expressed the way in which she served. Literally, she waited at table. She waited on them. And this is the more amazing for both Peter's mother-in-law and even Jesus himself, because a strict rabbi would have forbidden a woman even to serve at the table. Why? Because she was tasked with the responsibility to prepare the meal. Someone else was tasked with the responsibility to serve that meal. Servant. And yet she waited on them. And this must have had, again, an incredible effect on the disciples. I dare, see, dare say that this was something in the mind of Peter that reverberated day after day after day, even for his mother-in-law. In Acts chapter 9, notice an account that must have been in Peter's mind at this very moment. Acts chapter 9. And this is frighteningly similar. In Acts chapter 9, it says this, verse 36. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. I think I'd rather have Tabitha. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, Do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. And when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise! And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Isn't that so incredibly similar to this account here in Mark 1? You know that Peter must have thought in his mind by faith and confidence and trust that just as my Lord Jesus raised my mother-in-law up, I now have the opportunity to do the same. Almost incredibly the same language. And he extended himself to her and held her hand and raised her up. And I'm sure that just as Acts 9 and here in Mark 1, Peter is thankful to the Lord abundantly with a deep, deep, profound gratitude and a thankfulness. Someone said, whether in the crowded synagogue or in the quiet of the home, Jesus is ready and able to heal. It was his sympathy, his compassion, his love, which moved him as he came and took her by the hand and raised her up. This physical touch 
sends to us a picture of the tenderness, the compassion, the nearness of Christ. But this wasn't simply the mercy of Christ being displayed, but also his power. And that's the balance here. The balance is his grace and his mercy and his tenderness and his graciousness, but also his power. It was a touch of power because he raised her up. And the healing it brought aroused humble service in gratitude and love. And don't you know, the news was traveling very fast. Notice verse 32. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. They didn't have to... They didn't have to have any radio announcements, any television advertisements, any magazine advertisements. They didn't have to say anything because word of mouth spread quickly. There might even have been some friends and relatives who literally ran out of the house and were screaming and yelling that Peter's mother-in-law had been healed. This is an amazing scene. Did you know that excavations of the fishermen's quarter in Capernaum show how closely houses were packed together. And only one needed to step right outside their house, and they were immediately talking with neighbors and friends and relatives, and in a short time, all would know about the fact that Jesus was here and that he was healing. Mark gives that double time reference in verse 32. And when evening had come, after the sun had set. In other words, from 3 to 6 o'clock, that would be the first reference when evening had come, and then the second reference would be that which occurred after 6 o'clock, after the sun had set. You say, why is that important? Well, because there would have been many who would have not wanted to bring him from the 3 to 6 o'clock time. Why? Because this is the Sabbath. People would have been fearful of what the scribes and the Pharisees might have thought about bringing someone to Jesus so that Jesus could work on the Sabbath. You see, they didn't want to do any work. It says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 21 to 24, that there was to be no work on the Sabbath. And people might have been fearful, and yet at the same time they would have had this tension in their mind, but my, my brother, my sister, my mother are sick. They need Jesus Christ. They need this man, Jesus. What am I to do? I don't want to violate the Sabbath regulation, but I have a need. I have an incredible need. And so it must have been that from 3 o'clock, some of them, even braving the criticism of the scribes and Pharisees, were taking their lame, their ill, right to Jesus. And certainly after 6 o'clock, there were even more who were coming. Literally, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And it says, they began bringing. It's an indefinite term, and it means that everyone, everywhere in Capernaum who had heard of what was happening on this very special Sabbath were coming. And it, then it says, they began bringing. That means that they were continually. It's an imperfect verb. They kept coming. They one after one after one after one were coming. It's a steady stream of people. It must have been incredible. People inside the house, people outside the house, 
anxious friends, relatives, who could hardly wait for the sun to set so that they might bring these needy ones to Jesus. And it seemed to Peter that as verse 33 states, and the whole city had gathered at the door. Literally, they were flocking to the door. This mass of people began forming at the door. The whole city, the sick, interested loved ones, maybe even the curious, were jamming into Peter's house to see miracles before their very eyes. And what did Jesus do? Did he say, I'm too tired? I'm hungry. I need something to eat. No, he was so moved with compassion. He looked upon these people and they were lame and they were blind and they were naked and they were poor and they were demon-possessed. And he had an overwhelming desire to heal them. In fact, it says in verse 34, and he healed many. He healed many. Everybody who came. And you see that little word healed there? It's the word therapeutic. Therapeutic. Used in classical Greek of those who were attended to medically. Boy, what would it have been like to have the great physician? You come to his office and you go away healed. Two distinct classes, it says, all with various human afflictions, illnesses, medical maladies, and he healed them. And then notice it says, and cast out many demons. Exorcism, healings and exorcism. Boy, what an incredible, incredible scene. In Matthew's account, in Matthew 8, 16, It says this, When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, out, and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. You see, he's fulfilling his ministry. He's fulfilling what God has planned for him. In Luke chapter 4, the the other parallel, it says it this way. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and laying his hands on each one of them. Isn't that incredible? On each and every one of them. It must have took hours. Hours and hours. He was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God! But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak. You notice that in Luke's account in verse 42, it says, when day came. It might have been that night and day were rolled into one. He just kept healing and healing and healing and casting out devils hour upon hour. It even says in the Gospels that Jesus literally, in Palestine, during his ministry, eradicated disease. And that's incredible to me. 
He had such a compassion and such an authority, such a power. He healed many. Literally, all who were brought, he healed. Wasn't that so much of the hope of Israel? The healing Messiah, the one who has come to deal with us with authority and grace. This is Jesus Christ. This is the one. You say, and all the people fell down and worshipped him as the Son of God. Some, some may have. Some may have fallen down to worship him. Some may have. The text doesn't really tell us. We don't know exactly, but we might even assume that many of them didn't. That they were simply amazed. They received the the physical remedy that they were looking for, but not the spiritual one. There were some others who might have been shouting out that this is Jesus the Messiah. Some were probably just stunned. Just stunned at the reality of it all. Who is this man who teaches with authority, who casts out devils with authority and power, and yet he's a man of grace, tenderness, compassion. Notice what some responses were. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. I've often been intrigued by that. Why is it that Jesus didn't want anyone, whether human or demon, to affirm that he, in fact, is the Son of God? They were saying, he is the Son of God. Why was he not allowing them to speak? Well, I've told you before that there are a couple of reasons for that. Number one, it could have been that Jesus didn't want anybody who in an unwilling way, in a begrudging way, in a premature way, that would affirm his deity. Someone said this could have been a, a sadistic and malicious desire to identify Christ to the masses and possibly cut short his program and bring him to death sooner. Remember I told you that before, that it could have very well have been a preemptive and premature opportunity for Jesus to be taken into custody. Maybe that was Satan's plan all along. If I can get him through the demonic affirmation that he's the Son of God, they will gather around him in such a mass and such confusion that they'll take him away, that he'll not go to the cross. Satan knew where he was headed. And he no doubt did everything in his power to thwart the plan of God. Jesus was not allowing them to speak. Do you remember the account in Acts chapter 16 of what Paul experienced in this regard? In Acts chapter 16, it says in verse 16, It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Isn't that interesting? Someone who was actually demon-possessed who was telling the future and it was accurate because Satan knows in many ways what the future is going to be. He's very cunning, very smart. And it says there that they were making much profit there were masters who were putting this slave girl up to it. Verse 17 says, Following after Paul and us, that's Luke and the others, she kept crying out, saying, 
these men are bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Well, that's astounding. He's proclaiming the gospel. You'd think that Paul and the others would say, Amen! Keep preaching! Notice the response. He continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, do you see their motive? They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. This may very well be the biblical response as to the reason why Jesus himself didn't want his deity prematurely revealed. Because maybe they would do the same thing. Because maybe the scribes and Pharisees would get very, very upset at the fact that many people are now beginning to follow Jesus Christ, not them. And they will plot, as it were, an opportunity to seize him. This is exactly what happened. When they brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. This could very well be the reason why Jesus does not want these demons to proclaim him as the Son of God. There could be another reason. Someone said Jesus would not allow them to confess their superhuman knowledge of him because he would not accept testimony from such a source. All such testimony is not voluntary. It is an unwilling recognition of an empirical fact and therefore it corresponds to only spiritually transforming discoveries. In other words, Jesus only wants that to be publicly confessed by those who are willing to be obedient to him, not by those who are not. Jesus is prepared to await the revelation to be made by God himself that alone will enable every disciple to say with Peter, you are the Christ. You remember James 2.19, it says, Even the demons believe and shudder. You see, even demons have the right theology. They know who Jesus Christ is, but that's not enough. It must be wedded with faith. Though the demons may well admit that Jesus is the Son of God, they don't trust. They only shudder because they know what awaits them. And so John Mark shows us both the power the authority and the compassion of Jesus Christ. Right in the same miracle, the extending of a gracious hand and the power of one word, out! And the demons have to flee. Well, that's an incredible, wonderful balance. I think it needs to be no less our balance. In fact, turn with me in your Bibles to John 1 as we close. John chapter 1. I think we find the balance right here. You want to know what's behind the compassion of Jesus Christ? It's his truth. You want to know what's behind the truth of Jesus Christ? It's his compassion. In John chapter 1, it says in verse 12, But as many as received him, that's Christ, to them he gave the right, 
And that word right might be said in your Bibles, in your translation, the authority, exousia, the authority to become children of God only by Christ. To them, he gave the authority to become children of God even to those who believe in his name. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh. That's Jesus in his incarnation. And he dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. That's power. That's authority. That's majesty, glory, as the only begotten from the Father. Notice the balance. Full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Compassion and authority. And then look what we receive, verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. You want to see the compassion of Jesus Christ? Understand his authority. You want to understand the authority of Jesus Christ? Look at his grace. Should it be no less for us in our ministry? When we minister to others, we need to minister to them in the power of the Word of God, being empowered by the Spirit of God to speak the truth, to not compromise at all, not to shy away from the message of the gospel of Christ, and yet at the same time to respond to people with kindness and compassion and love and commitment. It's a wonderful balance. It's a, it's a difficult balance, isn't it? At times when I presume myself to be full of his power so that I can preach the truth of the Word of God, I'm needing the balance of grace and love and mercy and compassion. And when there are those times when I want to extend myself to someone in grace and love and fruitfulness and compassion, sometimes because of that I lack the balance of telling them the truth, of standing firm, not compromising the message. William Barclay says this, This miracle tells us something about three people. One, it tells us something about Jesus. He did not require an audience to exert his power. He was just as prepared to heal in the little circle of a cottage as in the great crowd of a synagogue. He was never too tired to help. The need of others took precedence over his own desire for rest. But above all, as we see here, as we saw in the synagogue, the uniqueness of the message of Jesus. There were exorcists in the time of Jesus, but they worked their elaborate incantations and formula and spells and magical apparatus. In the synagogue, Jesus had spoken one authoritative sentence and the healing was complete. You see, he was such a contrast to the magicians of the day. He was no magic man. Jesus completely disregarded all the paraphernalia of popular magic and with a gesture and a word of unique authority and power, he healed the woman. And the word that the Greek uses for authority in the previous passage is exousia. And exousia was defined as unique knowledge together with unique power. This is precisely what Jesus possessed. And this is what he was prepared to exercise in a cottage. A miracle to Jesus was not a means of increasing his prestige. To help 
was not a laborious and disagreeable duty. He helped instinctively because he was supremely interested in all who needed his help. What a challenge. He was just available. Number two, it tells us something about the disciples. They had not known Jesus long, but even in that short acquaintanceship, they had begun to take all their troubles to him. Peter's mother-in-law was ill. The simple home was upset, and it was for the disciples already the most natural thing in the world to tell Jesus about it. Thus, early on, the disciples had learned that which became the habit of a lifetime, to take all their troubles to Jesus and to ask his help for them. Three, it tells us something about Peter's wife's mother. No sooner was she healed than she began to attend to their needs. She used her recovered health for renewed service. There's a great Scottish family which has the motto, Save to Serve. Jesus helps us that we may help others. That's the message of this text. Are you helping others because you've received the spiritual healing of the sin of your soul? You extend yourself to others, helping them knowing that there is a balance of both authority and grace, power and mercy. It is my prayer for you and for me that as we continue to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ and with an effort to be like Jesus Christ, that we will exhibit that same power and grace, authority and compassion for his own. Let's pray together. Father, we echo the words of a great pastor of old, J.C. Ryle, who said these words, that blessed Savior not only gives mercy and forgiveness, he gives renewing grace besides. To as many as receive him as their physician, he gives power to become the sons of God. He cleanses them by his spirit when he washes them in his precious blood. Those whom he justified, he also sanctified. When he bestows an absolution, he also bestows a new heart. When he grants free forgiveness for the past, he also grants strength to minister to him for the time to come. Sin, sick soul, is not merely cured and then left to itself. It is also supplied with a new heart and a right spirit and enabled so to live as to please God. Grace shall always lead to glory. Father, we have been struck tonight by the wonderful and God wrought balance of power and grace, authority and mercy, truth and love. And we have seen it in its supreme example, our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we be challenged in a way that we can look at our own ministry and have the balance of grace and truth so that we might live to your honor and glory as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.